Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, very, very happy today because I am sitting across from Jeff Cesario, two-time Emmy Award-winning Jeff Cesario, a man who I really have a wonderful feeling in my heart about. I feel a lot of love in my heart for this man as I touch a shirt that is iridescent shiny and silky and should never be worn outside of a cabaret but i don't want to talk about that and make jokes because they're not funny but i had the opportunity of representing jeff for a little bit of time and it was really special he's a really really special guy and before i really got into talking to him because as you know i never know what i'm going to talk about when i sit across from somebody less until i do but I want to thank all of you again for all the support. You guys are so incredible and have been amazing with all of the letters and texts and emails that come in every day. And I I never could have dreamed about this. And I'm so grateful for that. And also, if you ever have the occasion to wanting to buy anything on Amazon, please go to my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. There's an Amazon banner. It doesn't cost you anything, but for some unexplained reason, Amazon seems to like the show and want our support. And so if you click on it, they send some kind of small donation to the Barry Katz Jewish Sons Fund of college. So I'm grateful for that. And and my boy, as they say in the Harry Chapin song, just turned 10 today. And now I have two boys who are 10 for about eight days. So I'm 
it's an exciting time. But right now I get to talk about all of this stuff that Jeff Cesario has been a part of and talk to you all about what I feel is the overriding thing that makes Jeff Cesario successful. And to me, and I don't mean to be a broken record sometimes, but I'm getting emotional here. It's about being a great guy. It's about being a wonderful, wonderful man. It's about being somebody who you have never seen lose their temper in all the years that you know him. (laughs) It's about a guy who has gone through incredible, incredible highs in his life and his career that you're going to hear about that are unprecedented for anybody starting out in the business as well as incredible lows that were bone crushing and after they were over wondering whether you're going to work again or work significantly in the business because what happens in our world is and this isn't true of the other worlds like if you're a pro football coach you can be bill belichick and be a 500 football coach in cleveland and you can get a gig after you're fired Rex Ryan can get a gig after he's fired and be highly touted after that. But in our business, if there's a show that gets canceled or you get fired, you are in jail. I mean, people look at you like literally you have some kind of plutonium all over you. And for some reason, they just don't feel the need to want to hire you when they can hire somebody who doesn't have the stain of a disappointment or something. It doesn't matter if you've won two Emmy Awards. It doesn't matter if you won an Academy Award. Just ask Monique what it means to win an Academy Award and then be in a situation where you do things in your career or you treat people a certain way or things get perceived a certain way and all of a sudden it's four years later and you're wondering, wait a second, that was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen how come I don't see this person anywhere in any movie? Why is that? If I had my choice, I might want to see this person again. And it's the same in the the behind-the-scenes world of writing and executive producing. And Jeff has always been an amazing man and so wonderful. And one of the things I want to talk about as you're out there in whatever job you do is the fact is, there's a reason why people hire you because you're a nice guy. A lot of times you're hired because you're a nice guy because the person in power who's hiring you is not necessarily a nice guy. A lot of times the person in power is somebody who you, the public, perceive as being a wonderfully smart, warm, fuzzy person. My God, they're so likable. I can't believe the way they're dancing around like that. I can't believe the way they're laughing with their guests. I can't believe that rant that guy just did with that smile on his face. Wonderful. But what you don't see behind the scenes are writers that sometimes are so infuriated by the person they're working with that they can't lose their temper because they'll get fired. So what they'll do is other things. Like, take it out on him in other ways, or her. Sometimes they might slash a person's tires in the parking lot. 
And nobody knows how the tires got slashed, except the people in the writer's room who are very, very happy when the host goes out to his car or her car and finds something happening. But the point being is that people who are nice people like Jeff Cesario, (laughs) kind, wonderful, warm, they make people who are tortured souls feel safer they make those people feel like, okay, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to throw a tantrum. It's okay to treat somebody like shit because I can always go back in the room before the show starts and sit across from Jeff Cesario and feel like everything's going to be okay. And so the point I'm trying to make is that, and I say this as I think about my two kids, Once in a while, my kids will throw a tantrum when somebody says something or makes fun of them or says something mean. And I always try to say to them, look, if you think that's mean, wait until you get in the workplace. Wait until you get out there and wait until what you have to experience. And if you throw a tantrum or react every time somebody punches you in the face verbally or physically, then you might as well just stay home and 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 forget about walking outside the house because life is all about people all over the place not being like you and a lot of times making it harder than it should be and so the point i'm trying to make in this cold open is that wherever whatever job you're in and however you're doing it and whoever you're working with i can guarantee you there's somebody you're thinking about right now who's an asshole and where you're working, who's somebody who makes your life miserable. I don't care if you're at McDonald's and you're making $10 an hour and you're taking shit from the supervisor who's making ten twenty-five an hour. I guarantee you, if you can figure out a way to stay calm and do what you want to do, who knows, maybe just go in the bathroom and go to the bathroom on the clock. Whatever it is, the point being is that don't take it out on them. Don't lose your cool. Don't ever be in a situation where you let them see you sweat. Because if you do, they win. They've got you. And then the people around you will look and see how you handle things and say, this guy or girl is not ready for the next level. So keep your cool. Take it easy. Whenever somebody upsets you, just go in the other room, blow off some steam, come back. And I guarantee you, if you do that... Like Jeff Cesario, you will always win. Here we go in three, two. They ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, 
radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to let you know about this one persistent guy, Michael Purcell, who kept calling me and traveled to L.A. to meet me. He told me that he created a company 10 years ago called Global Cash Card that figured out a way to make the payroll of any size company a paperless situation, allowing every employee's weekly salary to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere, stress-free onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. He went on to tell me that it costs a company around $3 for every paycheck cut, and that means if you're an organization that writes a thousand paper checks every week, with his company, you'd save $12,000 a month by using Global Cash Card. And if you do the math, that's $135,000 a year. So go to GlobalCashCard.com right now to schedule live demo, speak to Michael Purcell, check out their system, and see how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And in honor of the people out there who listen to this program, at the end of this show and at the conclusion of every single show, every single week until the end of the year, we'll be giving away one free $100 gift card to a randomly selected person who has written a review, good or bad, on the Industry Standard iTunes comments review section. And that's from all of our friends at Global Cash Card. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very, very great day today. Great day today because we are heading towards our 100th episode. We got some great podcasts coming up until then. If you're looking forward on your calendar, our 100th episode will be, uh, I think, the third week in June with Judd Apatow. Got to spend about two or three hours with him. And that was a blast, and there were a lot of things we revealed and, uh, and had some fun. But more impressing at this moment is my <laughs> guest today, who I am very excited about, and I'm going to give the proper introduction to, and that is my man, Jeff Cesario. <laughs> Jeff was born and raised in Kenosha, Wisconsin, <laughs> and worked as a musician before stepping up to the much more stable arena of stand-up comedy. <laughs> He's a veteran of The Tonight Show, Letterman, Late Late Show, and four of his own comedy specials, most recently one on Comedy Central. 
also one that I produced an hour special called yes. You Can Get a Hooker Tomorrow Night. One of the worst titles in our special history. <laughs> of course it's a great title. Watch me tonight. You can get a hooker tomorrow night. No, it was. I'm just busting your balls. He stars in something that I just saw, which is so funny on YouTube, called The Dick Rossi Show, which is basically like a madman if it were a talk show, I think. It's a, in, in a comedy form. It's hilarious. I suggest you go to the YouTube channel and check it out. He also does a ton of corporate shows, including IBM, Budweiser, Amex, ING, and successful shows all over the country, which are the hardest gigs to do. Most recently, Jeff was the head writer on the Queen Latifah show. <laughs> and before that, was executive producer on Russell Brand's Brand X for FX. If you have not seen Russell Brand do stand-up comedy, figure it out, find him, watch him, because... This is a guy who's much maligned in a lot of areas. I don't understand why, because he is one of the most brilliant guys that I've ever seen, and to see him do stand-up just blew my mind. Anyway, Jeff has written for Billy Crystal on the Oscars and wrote on the great show and one of my favorite shows of all time, The Larry Sanders Show. He also wrote the Warner Brothers feature film Jack Frost and won two Emmy Awards for his work on HBO's Dennis Miller Live. Please welcome my friend and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in the business, Jeff Cesario. <laughs> nice to be here, Bear. All right. The wow, first... I finally get to say something. The... <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> about that. you have that. a comedian here, do you realize there had to be 30 to 40 lines that went through my head <laughs> while you said, Jeff, don't talk during this part? <laughs> I, I do know that the... the, the, the <laughs> The failures. <laughs> there are many failures, many low points. I, I prefer to approach them as milestones in perseverance. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what this podcast is all about. That's it's it. all about you know dealing with all the horror and how you turn it around and make it great. So I, I've worked in front of the camera and behind the camera, and I know you mentioned that. And, and I always approached it in my head because I came from music as a as a, an artist like a like a Herbie Hancock or someone who could solo on his own stuff, but also be a great sideman. So for me to shift behind a camera was never, it was always, oh, this, will be, this sounds cool. Let's try this. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about Kenosha. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the socioeconomic ramifications of growing up in Kenosha. I don't know Easy. what your family was like. I don't know how it was like growing up. But take, take, lucky. But take us through <laughs> that and tell us where your first inspiration was to wanting to be in the entertainment business. Growing up, my hometown was about 25% Italian. It's only about an hour north of Chicago. Um, about 60,000, 70,000 people. Small factory town. American Motors was there. The big... It was, was, it was the nation's other auto town. <laughs> outside of Detroit. They built American Motors cars there. Uh, so it was heavily blue-collar town, uh, heavily ethnic. It was Italian, Poles. It was like a little slice of Jersey, you know, got got fell off and floated down the St. Lawrence Seaway and landed <laughs> in Wisconsin. It was very odd. Most people think I'm from New York or the East Coast until they talk to me for, you know, three minutes, and then they realize I have zero guile. <laughs> I have zero street presence whatsoever. And then they go, well, he can't possibly be from New York. He wouldn't know how to catch a cab. So so that's what it was like. Uh, I grew up, my parents were sort of great collar. My mom was a librarian. My dad was a photographer. He did class pictures and things like that and uh, uh, commercial photography. And, um, and I had two older brothers. Uh, 
And I think the first inkling for comedy was in, in uh, probably junior high when I just, you know, I was socially awkward, extremely shy, and not gifted athletically. So there's not a whole lot of places to turn in a blue-collar community to try to get chicks. <laughs> so I was ultimately a musician, and I found out I was funny, too. And then I had a... Um, now, you said you were ultimately a music musician. So what instrument did you start playing? Drums and percussion. Got it. I uh, got a music scholarship to Northwestern, went to school there my freshman year, and then I transferred to Wisconsin and finished out at Wisconsin and got, and got out of music. Because at some point, it's about the playing, much like comedy. It's about the comedy. You can have any degree you want, but if you open up your case and pull out your horn and go on the bandstand and you suck, you still suck. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was more about the playing than the degree. So I just thought, well, hell, I'll just get a degree in communications. Well, it was high school. I had a great friend... Um, Steve Houghton, who is a tremendous jazz drummer, was a top-call studio drummer out here for years, is now head of the jazz and percussion department at Indiana, which is one of the best music schools in the country. And he and I did comedy sketches in, uh, for the High School Variety Show. We did Who's On First, and uh, we did a bunch of stuff. We just had a blast together. And because we were both drummers, the timing was kind of there. Even though it was rough, you could kind of feel and see that the timing was there. And then he, the, actually the great lesson I learned from Steve was he was a monster musician, a monster drummer. And he could sight read things down cold. He could play his ass off. We went to college together and he would take about 10 to 15 minutes to get some really cool lick down on his drums, you know. And it would take me like eight hours to learn the same thing. And I realized, you know, yeah, you can do anything you want and you can accomplish anything you want and all of that blue collar stuff but there is something to the merit of affinity you you have to find something you have an affinity for and i realized well maybe naturally however my muscles and my brain have been put together drumming isn't going to be it maybe there's something else and that's when i realized i wanted to be a, a comic i'd always watch the comics on on the tonight show with johnny and Man, I remember Steve Landisberg and Franklin Ajay and guys like that. And you go, wow, that is the coolest way to make a living I've ever seen in my life. So I knew I, I had a yen to do it, and I finally uh, was able to do it at the ripe old age of 28. I started to do stand-up. But I knew I'd, I'd kill myself if I didn't try it, so I finally tried it. So you go on an open mic night where, and what happens? I did uh, open mic night in Los Angeles at the Comedy Store, the very first time I was visiting some relatives out here and I decided to sneak away and do it. And, you know, uh, my stomach was just a, just a bundle of worms. I can't remember a thing about it. I think I got one laugh in five minutes, but I remember walking off and the great Robert Aguayo, who used to run the open mics at the Comedy Store, great comedian, uh, guitarist, song parodies, things like that. He ran the open stages and I got off and he said, you know... Um, you're pretty good. You should come to the every Monday uh, workshop or whatever the hell it was. And I said, yeah, I can't. I'm out of town. I got to go back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. But that encouraged me. I did a couple more open mics, one in New York where the MC was Joe Piscopo. And um, that was back when the MCs were the, were the best comedian on the show. And they could just host and host. And then when they realized the cherry was about to be popped, they would go up and do their set. Now, that's when they would do their 20. What Jeff is alluding to is when the crowd is at its hottest. Yeah. 
And you know what's interesting about comedy, which is not true of probably any profession, when you go on as a comedian your first time, normally the chances of you doing well are probably like 5%, maybe 1%. Yeah. Um, you're never going, anybody going up for their first time, unless they bring all their friends in the crowd, and it's just, and even then, it's very rare. But what happens is you, if you know anything about comedy and you know anything about the way jokes are structured, you can tell when somebody's doing the right stuff, even if they don't get the laughs. It's just a question of their experience, their confidence, how yeah. they own the stage. And so what this person saw in Jeff, clearly Jeff was planting his feet, standing there, had a certain cadence and timing to his jokes. And even if they didn't all go over, he understood where things were going and that's right. why he encouraged him i was in the right key <laughs> i just wasn't singing right but yet but like you say that's just experience so you get a rhythm going and and it felt right and i felt compelled to do it and then i finally moved to minneapolis i was living in uh, madison wisconsin at the time and i moved to minneapolis to tackle it in earnest and i hit it right at the perfect time right in the early uh, late 1980 early 1981 when comedy was just starting to burst and there were clubs popping up everywhere. Now, and Minneapolis, the, the big, big guy, pardon the pun, Louis Anderson. Louis Anderson. I worked uh, with Louis, a great comedian named Alex Cole, maybe the funniest guy out of Minneapolis, and that's according to Louis and myself and everybody who got together. Wild Bill Bauer, the late Wild Bill Bauer, just passed away, hilarious comedian. Uh, Liz Winstead was there. Joel Hodgson was there. Was uh, Liz small... Winstead was one of the people who helped create The Daily yeah. Show. And Joel Hodgson created Mystery Science Theater 3000 and a bunch of other things. He's a brilliant kid. Um, so, I was a kid then. Uh, so, we were all there. There was like one club. Then we branched out and started two clubs. And the greatest thing about Minneapolis is that I was getting two to two and a half hours of stage time within three months of moving there. And stage time is When you say everything. two and a half hours and how long? I would say probably five to six sets a week at 20, 15, 20 minutes Got a set. It. So, you know, I was for and for a market like that, that's a lot of work. And for any market, that's a lot of work. So Louis was the first one from that market to get noticed. He yeah. did the Tonight Show, which was a, a groundbreaking Tonight Show. And back then you did the Tonight Show. And if you really, really, really hit it out of the park, you were working 1,500 to 2,000 seat theaters. I mean, you were you were skipping the comedy club. Yeah. And that's, that's what right. happened to Louie. He, he did The Tonight Show, and Roseanne had done it within maybe a year of him. And all of a sudden, he's on the road with Roseanne, and he's doing three to 5,000 yeah. seaters. Yeah. In the new vernacular, uh, there was one platform at the time. It was Johnny Carson. That's <laughs> that right. Was it. There wasn't multi-platforms anywhere. You just did Carson. And if you did well... Yeah, good things happen. So you saw Louis break, and was that something? Did the did the comedians? Because comedians sometimes are cruel in certain markets, and they're not supportive in certain markets. And then just like any job, but there's also certain markets where they are supportive of each other. Like Boston was one of those markets yeah. where people were very supportive. So when Louis broke, and all of you saw, holy shit, this can happen. Right. Were you guys supportive of him, or were people sniping, uh, how come he got it and we didn't get it? Well, comedy is by nature competitive, and it was it's less so now. I think there's more of a camaraderie to stand-ups, to improv guys. I th I, you know, and just the progress of men 
especially in business, has made it a little more congenial, I think. Uh, back then, it was a little more cutthroat. But still, I think overall, pretty, uh, very supportive. And, you know, Louis and I got along famously back in Minneapolis. I learned a ton from Louis about how to market yourself, how to brand, uh, how to make sure people get to the club. Louis is, Louis is a, a master at that kind of stuff, in addition to being a tremendous comic. So when he hit, I would say most of us were like, even if you, even if there were guys there who, who, who were jealous, even they, I think, would have to say, this is great for everybody. Because a, a comic came out of a small market like Minneapolis, hit it just a, you know just a cannon shot over the left field wall. I mean that shot of his on the Tonight Show was huge, and um, it was so great. And we said, uh, yeah, we can do it. We can. And I was the next guy out here from that. And uh, now, to, before you talk about that, can you tell our audience like some of the things that Louis taught you early on? Oh sure. You know before there was anything. What were the things that he taught you about business and how to do things and how to brand yourself and how to... Well, he knew the business and, you know, I... I how did he know the I business? I was off the turnip truck. I think he had it naturally. I think there are guys, there are people, and when I say guys, I mean men and women. There are comics who have a natural muscle for the business side of it. I never did. He always did. He knew how to market. He knew what people may want. He knew there were separate agendas in a room. He knew if I'm talking to the newspaper guy, he's going to need something to write a story about me to make it worth his while to do it. And at the same time, I got to give him something that's going to get people out. You know, he knew how to package. He knew how to market. He was he was a smart, smart guy. So we all started a little joint called Mickey Finn's where we would have to hang these plywood walls to separate off a 50-seat area from, it was the Steam Fitters and Pipe Fitters Union Building. So they had a little bar on the first floor. We'd have to hang these uh, pieces of plywood so that you wouldn't hear people talking about steam fitting and pipe fitting on the other side of it. And then we would do our comedy. And then comedy just boomed. And Louis said, I think we can find another market. And we went to the improv theater in town, Dudley Riggs, which... Uh, Franken and Davis, Al Franken and, and Tom Davis came out of there. I opened for them at Boston University wow. in 1980. Wow. They were out of there. And it was... Uh, they were the uh, some of the uh, uh, big writers on Saturday Night Live, yes. for those of you who don't know. And Al Franken, of course, now... Uh, Senator from Minnesota. That's right. So And, and several other really tremendous uh, improv people came out of there, including Peter Tolan, who went on to uh, do Dennis Leary's show. and Rescue on. Me. And worked on uh, uh, Larry Sanders. I did the Chappelle show with him. Uh, not the Chappelle show, but a Chappelle sitcom with him. Right. And he's now doing uh, Jim Gaffigan's thing, I mm -hmm. think. And uh, a tremendously talented uh, market. And uh, they had two theaters in town. One was for the resident company. They were always there. One was for the touring company. They were only there three or four months out of the year because they were touring. So Louis said, well, there's a room that's empty. Let's go talk to Dudley Riggs, who was an actual guy, a brilliant, funny, warm, wonderful guy. So Louis went and met with him and said, here's the deal. We'll take the weekends. We'll work on a split of the door so you don't get hurt. If, if we make money, you make money. And let's see what happens. So he cut some basic business things with him, and I was just trying to learn everything I could from Louis. And then Louis got the dates. Louis went out. Louis did the PR. We hit the newspapers. He was bigger than life. And he was making, you know, he would, he, the hook we had is, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out and do 
four great comedians, and it was myself, Joel Madison, who came out here, wound up working on Roseanne, created Malcolm and Eddie, another tremendous comedian. Alex Cole, who was who was in many ways the most talented of all of us, a tremendous actor and comedian who was already the guy in town who was working the colleges and all the big gigs. And Louie and myself, the four of us, we called ourselves the Minneapolis Comedy All-Stars, which pissed off everybody in town. <laughs> you know, but Louie Louis said, well, you know, what are we going to call us, a group of guys? we got to call us something with a little pizzazz, you know, a little zets. So he knew to do that. And then he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come back every time the touring company's not here with brand new material. Well, you know, I, I'm a... I'm a writing machine. I love to write jokes. So for me, it was like, all right, I'll take that challenge. But even after two of those, and, and the other guys were all like, really? We got we to write new material every three months? Are you crazy? A new 20? You know, but it was a hook enough where all the newspapers in town went, all right, we'll run a story on that. We got three, four, five stories on it. The alternative papers, uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune, St. Paul Pioneer Press. And to put this into perspective for those of you who don't know how hard it is to write comedy, I'd say the average amount of material that a working stand-up comedian writes and puts back into his act, at best a year, would be 10 minutes. Now, I'm not talking about like Louis, who's, Louis C.K. is writing a new special every year, Chris Rock, who's working <laughs> on a... I'm talking about just the average normal comedian on the road. Right. Average quality, tremendous comedian on the road. Even a Brian Regan, because you're working all the time and people want to see that A material, you're you're feathering in your new stuff here and there and a guy like that to come up with 15, 20 killer minutes, probably take him six months to a year. So, yeah, but, you know, when you're that young, you're just pounding out crap. I don't know what the hell I was doing, you know. So he got that hook in, and I'll never forget, we, Louis had a uh, powder blue mercury marquee that in, in the vernacular of the upper Midwest, it was called a sled because it could get you through the winter. It was one of those big-ass American cars that was just 16 feet and had all kinds of weight all over it that it shouldn't have that would get you out of a snowdrift. <laughs> And we rounded the corner to uh, Dudley Riggs in Seven Corners, a little neighborhood in Minneapolis. And there were on opening night, and there were people lined up around a corner. And I went, holy shit. Louis did it. Louis did it. Louis knew how to do it, and he did it. And he's, he is never one to avoid rolling the dice. And he rolled the dice, and we were packed for three months. We were the hottest ticket in town. It was so cool and so impressive. And then we put a couple bells and whistles on the show, but it was mostly just stand-up it was great it was great and and so i learned that from louis i learned how to market also to like you said taking the risk you know here's a guy he he goes out he there's no risk on the theater at all no risk at all the only risk were on the performers who were working for nothing who were working hours and hours to promote and get it ready for nothing yeah. with no guarantee that their time put in would make them money. The guy at the theater, he didn't give a shit because there was nothing in the theater anyway. If there were 10 people that were there, it was better than what he was doing. And Louis was smart enough to know that what I could bring to the table for him, in addition to having shown that I had potential and was funny, was I was just a, just a, a hot coal furnace of ambition at that point. You know, I'm older, I'm 28, 29. I realize I got a shot and I have to take it now. I'm shoveling material into the furnace every week, new stuff. 
I, you know, hey, you want, let's uh, get an interview for you. Yeah, let's go do it. You know, I was just so gung ho to do anything. And I believe that helped drive it as well. So, so, what, so what happens next for you? After that, um, how do you get here? I just decided to move. Louie had done it about nine months before me. So I knew I knew one person out here. The, the double edged sword of working a market like Minneapolis at that time was, was, the the positive was I got all that stage time uh, and got to make all those mistakes in a very short period of time. Those timing mistakes, those idiot things you do, how to work a crowd, how not to get upset when someone hackles, how to, all, all these things that, that if you don't have that level of experience, you just don't know. I got to work all of that out. The other side of that sword is that nobody was coming through town. We didn't have a club in town. We had one headliner through my entire two and a half years in Minneapolis was Rich Scheidner. That was the only guy who came through town. Because <laughs> we didn't have a club that could really afford to do it or knew how to take advantage of a national headliner. So we just never got any national headliners. We filled up all that time ourselves. Consequently, when I got out here, I didn't know anybody. And I'm painfully shy, so I moved out here, and I would go to New York sporadically. I, I didn't leave until I knew I had a circuit of clubs in the Midwest that I could go to in headline. I knew I could make my nut for the year, so I could work Minneapolis. I could work the gallery up in Minneapolis. I could work uh, uh, the Comedy Works in Denver. I could work uh, Stanford's in Kansas City. And, and so I had four, five, six clubs that I knew I could work and make my money. And then I would just go to New York and try to start breaking in there. And between New York and here... Uh, what my shyness, I, I think, was perceived as as arrogance, especially out here. I think because I would just stand by myself in, in a corner because I was fucking petrified. You know, <laughs> I just I, I don't know anybody. I'm trying to get on stage. I have no idea. You know, and and it, I I didn't find that out until I talked to some guys much later, and they just said, "Well, we just thought you you know you were off by yourself doing your own thing or something." And I just said, "No, I'm." I'm scared shitless i'm trying to find the bathroom for god's sake you know? <laughs> and the only people who understood that was was new york when i went to, when i went to catch in new york catch a rising star and uh lewis ferranda was bartender who lewis. went on to run caroline's yes and he also ran catch a rising star and he probably is the longest running talent booker in uh, the comedy club scene in new york probably in the country and, and I'll never forget it. I'm standing in that old catch on Second Avenue, I think it was. This is that long, narrow room with that long, narrow bar. And I'm just cowering in a corner. And New York, he, he kind of knew. I mean, he took one look at me. I didn't know anybody. And he just said, you want a beer? And I said, I would love a beer. And he gave me a beer, and I loosened up. And then I had good sets at catch. And that was the place I went to work when I was in, when I was in New York. So and that's catcher, how I kind of got started. Yeah. And Catch Rising Star was basically, if Letterman uh, was the validation stamp of comedy for yeah. stand-up, Catch Rising Star was the validation stamp for a stand-up comedian in New York City. Yeah. So I did that, and then I was fortunate enough to get on a Letterman showcase in, in 84, and they liked me, and they put me on. So Who was on that showcase with you? Oh, boy, I don't remember. I don't remember. Did you feel like you had a good set when you left and got in your car? Did you say, I, or got in a taxi? Did you say, I got this? I didn't say I got it, but I said, that's as, that's as good. That's as, I got all the wood I could on that. <laughs> I, could, yeah, I took out bit, the, the big berth and I hit it as hard as I could. Oh. I had a really good set, and I remember they were laughing pretty hard. Uh, Morty and, uh, and Barry Sand, who were producing Letterman at the time. And who calls you? Uh, Morty, to say you got it. So 
So and that and then when I did that, I have I I remember walking around Central Park just in a freaking daze. Can I swear on this? I don't even know. You can do whatever you want. Okay. Now, this is before you did it This or is after? the night before the set. So the night before. Now, no, what normally happens in comedy, what I find, and this is really bizarre. Now, I, I don't know if it's true of you back then, but one of the things you hope for as a comic, I, I, I know this is going to sound crazy. You practice your set. You practice your set. Sometimes Morty or somebody will come out to see you a couple of times, get it down the way it's supposed to be. And you do really, really well. And normally what happens, for some reason, the set before you do the show, wherever you are, doesn't really go that well. Yeah. And that's, for some reason, that's a good luck charm. And it doesn't seem like it should be, but it is. Yeah. It, it kind of humbles you, and it gets you like, okay, now I know what I got to right. do. Especially in those days, you know, in the, the halcyon days of stand-up, which, you know, those hardcore club days. That was sort of the, the bugaboo. That, that was one of the superstitions, was if your set went really well the night before, <laughs> it was a jinx. <laughs> which nowadays, I don't think anybody would care. But but back then, you know, it, 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 it was a little bit of a black cat vibe if that happened. Um, and I think at one point I stopped running it because I just run it so much. And then I, it was almost like an Andy Kaufman bit. Then I went into this long stretch where I, I said, I have to keep running it or I'm going to forget key words. And then I came out the other side like a month after that started and I realized, oh, I'm not going to forget it if I just relax. How do I relax? Oh, God, how do I relax? So... I'm crashing on my brother's floor. He had a studio apartment in New York at the time. And, and I just remember uh, getting the biggest zit of my life on my nose. I'd like this huge headlight zit. Like how long? Days before, before. Two days before. So I'm literally cutting it and pouring peroxide. I said, I can't go on national TV with a giant headlight on my nose. Unfortunately, I, I got rid of it. Let's just say that. And I was able to go on and do the set. And the set went really well. Now, you were talking about how you went, were walking through Central Park the day before. What were you thinking? I was just thinking, what do I do? Do I run my set anymore? Do I just walk? I mean, you're so jacked on adrenaline. And a set like that, is, that was just when, uh, you know, there were a, a couple other places you could go if you were a stand-up. Not really. It was still The Tonight Show. But Letterman started to use younger comics, and I thought, man, if I get this and I do well, this is going to mean something, you know. And uh, that made me nervous. And then just going up and not, you don't want to fuck up, huge, you know. I mean, that's what, that's the, that's the giant uh, um, Grim Reaper comedically in the back of your head is, is you are going to say something you are not supposed to say. You're going to do something you're not supposed to do. You're going to forget your whole life. I mean, it's just a, a guy in a black hood in the back of your head just saying all this shit. And you have to relax, get that guy out of there, and just do your job. Well, I believe you're talking about the Letterman show on NBC that yeah. you did. Yeah, 84. Now, this is what's also uh, was interesting about the Letterman show 84. in 84, is that I don't even understand how this happens because Dave was a stand-up comic. But normally a stand-up comic knows the best setup for comedy and wants himself and his comedians to win. But clearly Dave didn't have a say on how the setup of this particular show was run because if you remember correctly, performing on The Letterman Show, 
you when you perform in a comedy club, if you notice, you go into any comedy club, any theater, people are right up to the stage. Right. They can almost touch you. They're shoulder to shoulder. There's no space, nothing for anything to get lost. The Letterman Show, you walk down on your mark, no stage. That that happens a lot on talk shows. But then there's like 20 to 30 feet in front of you of empty space with three or four cameras rolling around. And then your audience is now up high, about five or six feet higher, farther back than you. Right. So whenever you see the old Letterman shows of people doing stand-up on NBC, what you'll notice is the comedians never killed as hard as they did on the regular Tonight Show when the crowd was right in front of them or these other talk shows. But when they did, you like Jeff did and he killed, you really know that somebody's doing something special. Yeah, I do remember there was a little different vibe. But, you know, as you know, you can't do what are you going to do? You got to have cameras. They got to have a place to run. You know, uh, they got to have, you know, the theater or proscenium seating or whatever you want to call it, banked seating, because you know they got to accommodate 500 people in the, in the joint. I, I was fortunate in that I'd worked a room in Minneapolis called the uh, Carlton Celebrity Room, which I believe was a uh, mob lawn money laundering joint. That's all I could, but it was like a thousand seat showroom in Bloomington, Minnesota, for no reason. But they would have all kinds of sort of Vegas acts come through. So I had opened for Gladys Knight there. I'd opened for uh, the Commodores. Um, you know, I'd opened for, for a lot of bands like that at this venue, which had that banked seating. So I'd gotten used to Alex Cole, who had worked a ton of those kinds of venues, had given me some advice. He said, just keep your eyeline up. Connect to everybody in the room. Just you're, When you're at a club, you're used to working here. When you're in a theater like that, you got to work here. You got to work up there. You got to work over there. You got to work down there. You got to work the whole room. So even when I got into that TV studio, I it clicked. I said, "Oh, there's people up there. I got to I got to throw a couple of eyeballs up there, you know." And you just start to connect, and that just helps the energy in the room. So that didn't throw me on Letterman. But yeah, yeah the vibe was a little vibe was a little different there. But mm -hmm. I just went out and had, you know, you're not thinking about anything, but you know, don't don't fuck up the adjective that you have coming up that tees up the next bit. No, it's so true. Comedy clubs, comedians are used to looking down. Um, talk shows, you have to learn to look up. Yeah, you got to connect. <clears throat> um, so you do the show. Uh, what happens to your life after the show? Well, my price in the clubs goes up 20 to 30%. I get probably a 30-date college tour out of it. I am stamped as someone to keep an eye on inside the business. And outside, I'm making more money. I'm getting my name a little further out there. And this is back before anything resembling social media. So uh, so you just work the gigs. You work those clubs. And so I was able to do that. I did another Letterman a couple years later. And lo and behold, um, uh, you know, the Tonight Show had been keeping an eye on me, Jim McCauley. And, uh, and I did a Tonight Show in 87, which was mind-boggling. With Johnny. With Johnny. I Talk about that. I, it, well, you know... I, I was fortunate in that, in that I'd had a, a couple of Letterman's under my belt at that point, so I didn't have to worry so much about the mechanics. I could really focus on the bit, and Macaulay helped me craft that. You know, um, you pull from divergent areas of your act to do a television set. 
you know, you rarely are able to pull six minutes. It's an, in its entirety from your act and drop it on the television. Usually they go, we like this two minutes and then we like the two minutes of the sports stuff. And then how about that cooking thing you do? And then it's up to you to make that cohesive and feel like that's the way you do it every night of your life. Um, so I was able to kind of pull that together with Macaulay. And, and of course, in retrospect now, and a lot of the fun of talking to you here will be to, to reflect on what I've learned from behind the camera. In retrospect, Jim Macaulay's whole job at that point, rest his soul, was, you know, please Johnny. That's the name of the job. Get comics on that Johnny will think is funny that Johnny will like, that Johnny will want back. So anything that's in the comic's head, geez, why didn't he like that bit? Why didn't he want that? Well, I usually do those two bits together. You know, it didn't matter. The guy's working for you going, hey, I just want you to get back out with fucking Johnny. So we... What, what comedians don't like about that philosophy is the fact that, let's say you have a five-minute bit on surfing and... Jim McCauley or whoever the booker is today says, hey, I love this last two minutes of the surfing bit. Well, now you can't do the surfing bit right? the way you normally do it on television unless maybe you do an hour special and you want to do the whole piece right. and you've elaborated on it. But for another late night talk show, that, that bit is dead. Right, true. But the advantage now is there's so many platforms where you can go where they're willing to let you do the full five-minute thing. Nowadays, you have that luxury. I believe there's places you can go that will do it. Nowadays, you can develop enough of a branding, enough of, of a celebrity branding to your name where you may find a venue that'll go, we've got so-and-so, you know, we've got Mike Birbiglia here. Mike, do that whole chunk. You know, don't just chop it up. But back then, you know, it was... It was a very, very small end of the funnel. And uh, you're just shoveling comics in the big side of the funnel. And only a few are coming out the end. So you did whatever you did. And, and I just remember going out and my first line uh, got a really great response. And that just relaxed me. And I, and I, and I remember the joke was, uh, you know, I don't look, uh, I'm not from California. I moved out here. Uh, I certainly don't look like I'm from California. I show up at a beach out here and people go, who called a cab? That was my <laughs> joke. And and that did really well. And then I killed the rest of the way. It was very uh, relaxing. And I think Macaulay knew if you hit that joke, the first one out of the park, you, this kid will relax. And, and uh, it was phenomenal. And then it was Carson and Carl Reiner. That's back when guests used to stick around. So I'm wow. I'm already doing my set in front of comedy royalty. And then to have that good a set and to have Carson give the big okay. and uh, Which uh, back then, which we talked about, if Carson gave you the okay sign, that meant that you had the second validation stamp yeah. of comedy. And he said, you're going to be hearing a lot from this kid or something like that. And I was just like on cloud nine. So that was great. And then I did like 14 in the next four years. I you did just, 14 tonight shows. I was just hammering them. Seven or eight with Johnny. and, and another When was seven. the first time they allowed you to go to the couch after your set? My fifth time. So you knew you were going to the couch. Yeah. What was that like? Because had you ever said hello to Johnny, like, actually, like... I think he might have said hello once <laughs> real quick. But I quickly was able to uh, kind of feel the vibe with him. It, he, he'd like to kind of take little tangents off the prepared uh, bullet points uh, on panel 
they would give the host three or four bullet points, which were essentially glorified conversational setups to another bit for you. But Johnny liked to go off of those, you know, and and I, I loved it because it was like sitting around with the comic bullshitting a, a premise, you know, and I realized, oh, man, he's a comic who never gets to do this anymore. He's too big. There's nobody sitting around at a bar with Johnny, three, four, five guys sitting around with a Rob Roy spitballing shit. You know, he doesn't get to do it. This is where he gets to do it on national TV. So the very first time I did panel, my first setup, he kind of took a little left and I went with him and he got a big laugh and then I tagged it and got a big laugh and I thought, this is fun. And he like responded to that. So my next two or three with Johnny, I had, I did panel as well. And I always had a good time. And for those of you who remember the Tonight Show, after a comedian paneled uh, and sat down with him, uh, and he said, uh, we'll be right back after these messages, he leans over, he shakes the person's hand, and he says something into their ear. What did he say in your ear? He said great stuff. He just said great stuff. Great stuff. And, you know, from another comic, let alone Johnny Carson, you go, okay, that's, that's, that's one of those moments I'll never forget. I did a, I, I have to say this because I remember it, I did a Bob Hope special somewhere in the early 90s, and he was just coming off his, I think he had had a stroke. He had his first heart issue. But he had recovered almost fully, and he was doing these young comedian specials. So it was me and Jeff Foxworthy and Carol Leifer and John Henson. And uh, um, we were we all were doing it, and then we had to do promos. And you did uh, promos for your markets. My strong markets were Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago. So we did separate promos for them. We're reading the promos. Bob misses a line. It's just me and Bob Hope in front of a camera, which is ridiculous enough. And <laughs> he misses a line, and you know he's he's already ninety. You know he just he's recovering from a stroke. So I pick up the line off the prompter, and we finish the bit. And then he just leans in. This is Bob fucking Hope. He leans in and he goes, "Good boy," like that. And I went, <laughs> "I can die happy." <laughs> It was the coolest moment ever. It was so great. So take me through how you transferred or made the transition into being behind the camera. And this is probably, if you tell the story I think you're going to tell, is one of the most amazing stories that I've ever heard in my life. And uh, and I don't think it's... it's wild. I don't think I've ever known it happening, and I don't think it's ever happened since. Any time nowadays in the last 20, 25 years of my career when I've hit a low point and I think, geez, I, you know, I could use a, use a pop, use a break. I have to think back and go, oh, dude, you got some big break. <laughs> the karma's still cool. Um, and this was maybe the biggest. I had been working as a stand-up based off of those Tonight Shows at a pretty high level, hitting those clubs, doing the road, getting some gigs on TV, that kind of stuff through the early 90s. Um, Dennis Miller, simultaneously, uh, Dennis Miller and I had become fast friends in the mid-80s. We were two sides of the same coin. Uh, we wrote in a very similar fashion. We performed in a somewhat similar fashion. Dennis was a little darker, a little edgier. I tended to be a little lighter. Um, we hit it off like that the second we met and we just became fast friends and I think he was somewhat victim to the same thing I think he 
could be painfully shy. And so we sort of bonded. And then we would just sit in the back of clubs and just make each other laugh all the time. So we hit it off. He hit it in the mid-'80s for SNL, got the update gig, and uh, we maintained our friendship through the entire time. We did road work together. Uh, he had become clearly a marketable star at that point. Uh, he had had a syndicated talk show that they tried on the Tribune Network that was more of a traditional talk show, one-hour host, desk, couch, celebrities, that kind of thing. Uh, he was promised a year, I believe. He made six months, and they, and they, they pulled the rug. I did his show as a stand-up three times. Uh, he was kind of licking his wounds, nursing his wounds. He was with Brad Gray at the time. His manager, Brad Gray. Um, and Not anymore. Now no. it's the head of a... Head of Paramount, right? That's right. Uh, so Brad uh, is able to... Now, at this point, as you pointed out in your cold open, oftentimes you don't get second third chances in this business you know so dennis had this talk show pop and everybody was like geez what's dennis gonna do now you know how do they construct something around dennis to make it work so brad went to hbo went to michael fuchs at the time at hbo great executive real vision and a real champion of comedy and michael fuchs said look i like when he rants i like when he does his stand-up and he gets off on these rants build something around that and maybe we'll take a pop we'll do like six half hours and see what happens so Brad goes back to Dennis, and Dennis says, you know, he goes back to Dennis and says, this is the deal if you want to take it. So Danny goes, all right, I'll give it a shot. You know, and then he goes, but if it's HBO, I, I want, I, I would like Jeff to produce. Let me call Jeff. So he calls me, and, and I'm just doing the clubs and everything. So he says, uh, Jeff, Brown, would you be interested in producing, executive producing my show? And I go, well, hell yeah. I mean, you know, I was just working the clubs. I'd had one or two pilots and things that hadn't quite gotten me traction. And, I th and I'd always been interested in that side of the camera because I'd always wanted to write movies and television and maybe be in them. But I, I, I liked that side of the camera as well. So Danny goes, do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I meet with Brad. Brad goes, well, okay, let me take it to HBO. Brad Gray. And we go to HBO. And, and I don't. I'm not involved in any of these meetings. So, <laughs> and again retrospect after another 20 years of of this i realized oh my god i don't know how they did it because i'm just a comic i have zero behind the camera experience and i'm essentially the executive producer of a show that could be dennis's last shot <laughs> at tv and, and i'm going to stop you here for a second because this is what's also uh, just to preface the story so not only is jeff a guy who I hope he doesn't take offense to this has never gotten somebody a cup of coffee on a set before. Right. Okay. He's being offered the number one highest credit that you can get on a television show by the star. That, to Dennis's credit on SNL, that was during a stretch when it was still a shark tank, that writer's room. Uh huh. And a, and a hard Shark Tank to be in. So everybody in that writer's room was trying to get sketches on for the improv actors. Nobody was writing for Dennis. I mean, like, nobody. Herb Sargent would once in a while kick in for Dennis. The great, late, great Herb Sargent was tremendous. But her was busy running a room, running everything else. So I would throw Dennis stuff from the road. I would go, Denny, uh, this is a two-week so a two bit. 
I can't do it anymore. Do you want it? Do you, do you want it? worked for me the last two nights. But that actually was smart of you because you decided to help him from afar, not go into the shark tank there and wait for a time where something could happen. But what's interesting also is that Brad Gray is a manager. He's managing Dennis Miller. He's managing Gary Shandling, some big people. Um, um, Brad Gray wants to hire one of his guys. Yeah. He wants to package the show. The more people he packages in, the more powerful it becomes a package. The more Brillstein Gray can get more money, a whole big thing. And And then HBO. And HBO. Where's HBO coming from? They're coming from, like, could we get somebody with some experience in here, for God's sake? But Dennis is telling him. Adamant. Adamant. I have to have Jeff. Now, if you're a manager, which I, I am. Somebody says that, I'm like thinking, well, you know, I, I love Jeff, but, you know, we want you to have right. the best chance to win. Yeah. Maybe we can bring Jeff on as like a producer yeah. and we'll get somebody's an executive. Hey, no, babe, I want yeah. Jeff. No, Jeff from understands me. So and, in and retrospect, so, I can honestly say at this point, I have no idea the meetings that Brad was in, Brad Gray, where he had to go. Look, this is what Dennis wants, and um, you know, I believe there's a way we can give this a chance. I don't know how Brad did it. It and to their credit, HBO, Bridget Potter. I will never forget her face. Just you know, what do we have planned for this week? You know, <laughs> you know. And at the time, Dennis was, you know, he had already had his talk show. So he's had celebrities. So we were scrambling. I mean, up, up to that point, the biggest name we had booked was Bob Costas, and he wasn't in sh- until show six. <laughs> so we had, like, the associate director of the National Organization for Women. We had, you know, just, we had these people who were, you know, so. So your first show was. I can't remember who the first show was, but I also remember that we didn't have the, we didn't have the, the, uh, the racing fuel mix right yet. We had too much seriousness and, seriousness and not enough comedy in the first episode. And uh, Dennis came to me after the episode. And he said, "Jeffro, we got to get some jokes in there." So we we had uh, we retooled for the second episode. And I said, "I got to get a guest, no matter what." So I called his brother Jimmy Miller, who was just beginning to blossom as one of the big managers in the industry, and at the time represented Jim Carrey. Went on to represent Will Ferrell, and you know, tremendous manager. Absolutely. So I called Jimmy, and I go, Jim, uh, whom I knew from just you know shooting hoops with when because everybody it, was nobody. But you also knew him because his brother booked comedy clubs. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, uh, Rich. So I called Jimmy, and I go, Jim, um, we got to try to get Jim Carrey on this. And he goes, well, he's shooting Dumb and Dumber, this movie called Dumb and Dumber, up in the mountains in Aspen. He had just come off of, uh, of um, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. So he was hot. And, uh, and I said, well, let me see. Here's the brilliant thing HBO and Brad did was get a uh, another EP named Kevin Slattery who handled all the line stuff. So I didn't have to worry about a lot of things that EPs normally have to What worry. Jeff's talking about is probably one of the most valuable positions in any show is the line producer who not only helps figure out who's hired as the craft service person, but who's doing the cameras, uh, the budget that it takes that you have for remote pieces, what monitor you have who the stage managers are, very, very important position. And Kevin Kevin tackled that with a vengeance, all of that stuff. So I went to Kevin and I said, look, it's between Jim Carrey and 
you know, I think we had the bullpen coach. For, you know, I mean, it was like we had nobody. So I said, we have to get Jim. There's just no way around it. I can feel it. I can feel it, you know. And I'm getting the blank stares from the network. And I'm I, even though I'm, I'm a bit naive, I know, you know, the heat's on. So we have I go to Kevin and I go Kevin Slattery my my co-ep and i go can we get a can we get a satellite truck a, a truck up to aspen he goes yeah you know if it blizzards we're fucked but we can try so <laughs> i said that's all we got we can't take a chance on a second week uh, week two can't be like week one i'm surprised you didn't ask for the private jet oh god i didn't have the balls <laughs> i'm trying to deliver a show so jimmy busts his ass jim miller busts his ass we get we jack the show full of jokes. We get the satellite trike that has to drive from Denver to Aspen in a blizzard. It gets there an hour and a half before the show. We're live. We are Dennis Miller live. We are live on air. The satellite truck barely gets there. You know, they're dropping the truncheons <laughs> into the snow, trying to get the thing jacked, trying to figure out how to Jim Carrey's got the the the, the, the stupid haircut. He's just sitting there. I, I remember with, this episode. It's our second episode. Second episode. I had come up with, with a hook, and we barely had that. We didn't want to presume to write for Jim, but we also said, well, we got to do our job. So we came up with a hook, and I, I remember kicking it around a writer's room, and I said, what, what, you know, the, the topic was fame. The one thing that I had been able to contribute to the show that I thought, I, a couple of things that I thought helped make the show, one of them was let's theme them. Even if we get off the theme, it'll give a slug line. And TV Guide, really nice, you know. So, you know, Dennis Miller Live tonight. Goes um, back to Louis Anderson. Morals, yes, exactly. The the, the the marketing. So I said, that's going to read. So tonight, fame. So I said, what if Jim pretends to be humble and then somebody walks in with a drink or he asks for water <laughs> or something and he just fucking goes off on the guy. That's the little kernel that we gave Jim. <laughs> So, so no pre-interview, no No, nothing because he's in the mountain. But the it's time. a live show. And so I'm like, oh, shit, man, let's let's hope this works. I'm just concerned we're getting a signal because I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting snow and stuff. And, you know, I got a I got a, you know, <laughs> I got a control booth crew that's already on edge because it's Dennis, you know, who's a, a tad prickly to work with. So I'm trying to calm everybody down, hose everybody off. And Dennis is like, man, you know, I think we got great jokes. But like anybody in that situation, you know, and I've written for some great, great comedians. At some point during that week, whatever gig it is, whether it was Larry Sanders, whether it was Dennis, whether it's Billy Crystal, whoever it is, they're flying the jet. You lock down the cockpit, lock the door. From, from five days out, anything they do, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. That's the funniest shit I've ever because they're flying the fucking plane. <laughs> so Dennis is in the cockpit, and I'm like, Danny. You're fucking roasting this material. It's killing. So I'm trying to keep him like together. <laughs> Meanwhile, we finally get to like this through this through the actual TV snow and the snow. We're getting a signal. So I'm like, oh, thank God, I got a signal. We get a signal. <laughs> we go the 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 monologue crushes. The rant crushes on fame. He does a rant on fame. So we're 12 minutes into this show. It's crushing. We go to Jim Carrey live via satellite, box and box. <laughs> He's just sitting there with that dumb fucking haircut. <laughs> and, and he starts to talk, and he is laying this rope out like you wouldn't believe. Dennis, I think it's so important to stay humble, to understand your roots, where you're from. Sure, things seem good for me now. I had a hit movie. But, you know, a lot's going to depend on this movie. And, and um, you know, my throat's a little parched. Can I get a little water, please? 
he's selling the shit out of this. And this kid, I don't know who the kid was. I don't even know who the kid was. He brings in water. And I said, make sure it's on like a tray, just so what Jim wants to do. So he brings it out on a tray, just a glass of water on a tray. And Jim is sitting just like us. I still to this day have no idea how he did it. He's like this. And he goes, you call that water? Something like that. And he flies. He flies up. It's like a karate move. He kicks it out of the kid's hands, and he winds up in a standing position. I have I have some news shooter from Denver who's smart enough to zoom out to get the whole thing, and he goes off on this kid for like three fucking minutes, and it's and he's he's like standing over the kid, nailing him, and then he sits down and he goes, anyway, where were we? Like fame. Fame should not, and he just goes right back into it, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm the luckiest guy in the fucking world. That crushes. We do like four minutes of picture jokes at the end. That kill. The show gets a standing o with a satellite guest. We get a standing ovation. I'm out of my mind. That week, we get a review out of the New York Times. I think the fellow's name was John O'Connor, who said Lenny Bruce is looking down. Uh, and no doubt smiling or something like that. Between that and that and the Jim Carrey show, HBO relaxed. And they said, okay, we see what this could be. We see how good this could be. So we're going to let it ride. And that saved, that saved us. And um, Denny just, Denny goes up, you know, these guys that have a mind that fast, that are that good, they're gunslingers. You know, you can't bring a, you can't bring a middle act out. <laughs> you bring a headliner out, and then Dennis is firing nothing but silver bullets. I mean, he crushed that show, and we won our first Emmy for that show. Just to put it in perspective, everybody. Okay, so. Jeff Cesario hadn't gotten anybody a donut on a set, okay? He gets the call to be the executive producer. HBO, simply the best. Yeah. agrees to have a guy executive Bruce's show who has done nothing and in his second episode they win the Emmy Award and if I'm not mistaken is the first time a cable network a cable won... series beat a network series for an Emmy in a major award and then four years later there were no more Ace Awards that was the one that kind of popped the popped the balloon and then all of a sudden they were winning Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting, Best Show, that kind of stuff. Within the next decade, Cable took over the end. Ironically, the two shows you beat, Letterman yeah. and The Tonight Show. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and That's then, right. of course, you do great work. You keep your job. Yeah. And then they do the second year, and second you submit year. which show for an Emmy we Award? We submitted the Robin Williams show, which was our, our uh, second show of season two. Got it. So the first show, they only, only got they only, only got a six-episode six order, which is very rare. The second uh, season, I believe they got ten. Yeah. And we got 13, I think, second. 13. And then your first show out of the box, same mistake. Too serious. We had had some... Some factions on staff that had wanted to sort of uh, set a, a more political course, at, which is great if you have the jokes to back it up. And again, the, the, the fuel mix wasn't quite right. And we had to jack in some high octane jokes for week two, which we did. Fortunate enough, we look up and it's Robin Williams. I make the call to Robin Williams, the second show they submit. 
wins an Emmy Award again. Yeah. So Jeff Cesario, the man you're listening to today, who never did anything on a set, has now won two Emmy Awards in eight shows. <laughs> That's right. And as I say That's to true. anybody listening, you know, it's one thing to suffer glorious defeat at the beginning of your career, which, believe it or not, is much better because you have nowhere to go but up. But if you're in a situation where you just won two Emmy Awards in eight shows, yeah, where do you go from there? Like, in your Wait. mind, like, what did you say to yourself? Like, well, what can I do to top this? Well, I'll remember a couple of things. The first thing is after that first Emmy that we won, Dennis and I took a little walk after the first Emmy, and we just looked at each other. And, you know, he's from a blue-collar city, Pittsburgh, and I'm from a small blue-collar town in Wisconsin. And... And we just looked at each other and we said, you know, if we died tomorrow, we would be extraordinarily happy. This is the pinnacle for two young bohunk idiots out of essentially the Midwest to crawl out of the muck and mire and, and get somewhere in show business to a point where you won an Emmy. Um, so that was fantastic. Then then the second thing that I did think, and, and I started to get, the, the germ of savvy at this moment, I still don't have a lot, as my career will attest, but, but I started to think, it's amazing. I went from, and I mean in a span of six weeks, I went from, this guy, he's a comic, he can't handle shit. Get somebody to please get a team of whatever, God almighty help us, to... You're the guy who can handle tough comedic talent. We're going to do a show <laughs> with Chris Rock. You're the EP we need. <laughs> and you got to vary six weeks. <laughs> uh, suddenly, oh, I'm the guy who can handle, you know, prickly talent or comedic geniuses or whatever, you know. But this is the other thing that happens if you get to this point. What happens is you get offered jobs left and right to do for more money, more prestige, even though you've won an Emmy Award. Um, and they tr and they offer you things that overpay you, but now you have a guy, Dennis Miller, who basically bet on you. Yeah. He went and he fought for you. Yeah. And he stuck his neck out for you, but yet you have this offer on the table that you have, you know, you have to decide whether you take it or not. Because if you take that job, you can't do the other job. Right. I wound up doing uh, thirty nine. I did another. Uh... We did a cycle of six, a cycle of 13, then a cycle of 20, and I stuck around for the 20. At that point, I knew the show was was in great shape. I, you know, it was wall-to-wall -wall refillable. At this point, what you needed was just continue a pipeline of great writers on the show. Um, I decided I had, a, I had the potential Chris Rock thing they wanted me to meet on that, but that was going to be out in New York, and I loved Chris. And... I, but I didn't know if I wanted to get pegged as that guy. Um, I wanted to get into narrative. And then Gary Shanley put an offer on the table to come on his show. I had done a script with Judd Apatow. My last season on Dennis Miller, I had done a script with Judd Apatow for Larry Sanders um, called The Bump based on my personal experience on the show. I had been writing. I had met Gary through Dennis. When you say the bump, being bumped from a show. Being bumped from a show where they run out of time. It's usually the comic. They bump off the tail end of the show. Now, I had um, been writing stand-up for Larry, for Gary, 
um, they would do these monologues in the Larry Sanders show, and and uh, Gary was kind enough to ask me to write for that. I had done some writing for him when he guest hosted the Tonight Show, and he had liked that. And um, Dennis and I would always go when Gary was guest hosting the Tonight Show and write for him because it was just such a blast. And Gary's a, a genius and a ton of fun. So when uh, I, I decided, so I had been around the Sanders camp, but I hadn't done anything but write monologue jokes. And they, they sort of as an homage, he got in the habit of saying, uh, Jimmy Kimmel has sort of borrowed it with the, with the Matt Damon thing. He got in the habit of saying at the end of Larry Sanders' episode, at the end of the beginning monologue of Larry Sanders, he always starts the show, usually starts the show with a monologue. So a minute into the show, he's wrapping up his monologue, and then you go behind the scenes into the real Larry Sanders show. Well, at the end of those monologues, he would, or the end of the show, whatever it was, he would always go, my apologies to comedian Jeff Cesario. We ran out of time. <laughs> we'll get him on next week or some shit like that. And we added it up at one point. It was like eight, nine times he'd done it. So I said, why don't we write an episode where I get pissed that he bumps me for like a tenth time? And then he promises to get me on and all hell breaks loose. And that's about what I had. And then Judd came in and said, let's do it this way. Let's add a ticking clock to it. Let's add the plot that Hank's dad dies and Hank wants to do a big eulogy now. So all of these clock pressures on the very <laughs> next night that Gary has, Larry has promised to get me on the show. So it, it was... And this was your first acting gig. Yes. Uh, no, I had done some acting in the late 80s or early 90s, right around the same time. Uh -huh. um, and uh, so uh, so, uh, so we decide to go that route. Judd, you know, dolls up the script and makes it presentable because he knew how Gary liked to look at scripts and what he liked and what he didn't like. He could monitor that. And, uh, you know, Judd was a, a great right-hand man for Gary, as was Peter Tolan. So I was fortunate enough to have uh, Judd put his touch on it. We went. Gary said, this is great. Let's do it. And uh, did it. We did it. So based on, I think, what Gary may have seen in that script, he said, would you like to do a year on staff? So I had always to, wanted to write narrative. And so between Chris Rock and Larry Sanders, I said, I got to go Larry Sanders. Okay, but you get the offer from Chris Rock yeah. and HBO yeah. for an executive producer gig. For Larry Sanders, if I'm not mistaken, you didn't get the offer for the executive no, producer. No, it was just producer right. I know. So yeah. you took a step down well for me it didn't feel like a step down monetarily it was a it was it was a good no move. monetarily much bigger but i'm talking about the the credit why did i, I you... had decided after 39 that i that i knew i wanted to try narrative and uh and if i was going to stay in that end of the business i thought well i would just stay with dennis why i know this gig you know I loved Chris, and I thought it would be a real unique challenge. But but the biggest drawback for me with Chris was that it was New York. And I also knew he knew a lot of great guys out there. Jeff Stilson, Louis C.K. I mean, he 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 stoked up Mario Joyner. He had guys all over that staff that, could, that knew him better, that knew him from New York, that knew his M.O. better, that could probably deliver on some level better. But also you took the risk, and yeah. you went to scripted as opposed to... Um, the talk show format, right? And, and you have to take a sometimes you have to take a little step back to take two steps forward. And it was and it was amazing. I call it narrative camp. Every day yeah. at Larry Sanders, I would drive to work and just go, "What am I going to learn today?" Because uh, Gary was great. Uh, uh, I had a tremendous showrunner in John Regi. John Regi, who's brilliant. So Johnny Regi, he's he's the best from, from Ohio, I believe, and a great stand-up comedian, great and a great, uh, a great, great showrunner, great exec, and a great person. 
and uh, John Vitti was there at the time, so I just slid in with the two Italian guys, and, and they covered my ass, quite frankly, on a number of occasions. They helped me uh, learn on the job without losing my job. Tell me your greatest disappointment in show business and how you turned it into something positive for your career. Well, greatest disappointment would have to be, um, I had a movie script uh, that I'm, I'm still hoping to produce um, about a rock and roll manager who pulls his supergroup, a 90s supergroup back together uh, for a reunion tour because the lead singer's dying of cancer. <laughs> and uh, it's a very dark look at the music world and I know that world a little bit. And, I knew some guys who knew that world, and I had what, what I felt was a really good script that had gotten some good coverage and, and uh, had gotten me several meetings. In fact, back when I was with you, we'd gotten a ton of meetings on it. But again, it was sort of a dark, edgy script, and you needed kind of talent attached, I think. And I was just learning those things. But uh, one of our last meetings was uh, with uh, James L. Brooks, who was legendary i mean it's legendary movies television you name it the guy's one of the best writer producers in the world the greatest and uh we're actually pitching another project um and he says send me a writing sample so i send him the the rock and roll movie script and uh he reads it and goes you know the hell with the pitch i don't care about that anymore i want to do this and we're like uh yeah cool <laughs> you know i'm like this is great you know, so we go in and meet with James L. Brooks, and he's like, this is fantastic. I really like the writing. And, and, you know, it was such a validation to have a guy like this who I've admired from afar for so long. And he's like, this is fantastic. I want to do some things to it. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, you know, you're James L. Brooks. We'll mold it however you want. But he said, you know, I, every other page I felt surprised and energized by the dialogue and the, it felt authentic. You know, he just was really genuinely complimentary. And to, uh, I, I realized in every stage of my career, uh, as a stand-up, then as an executive in television, I mean, an EP, you know, producer in television, and then as a writer, uh, I'm very hard on myself and I need to know I'm hitting on all cylinders from someone who's hitting on all cylinders before I realize, okay, now I can relax and try to do my job. That was the ultimate validation for me as, as a film, as a scripted writer, television or film. And so he goes, we're doing this. Now, uh, depending on when the writers go on strike, we'll cut the deal. <laughs> so... Like, like literally 36 hours later, the writings, Writers Guild decides to go on strike. So we don't have time to close the deal. And, sh you know, even Brooks was like, well, you know, it's probably short. Just, you know, three, four weeks, whenever we settle, we'll get together, we'll organize this whole thing, and we'll knock this out of the park. Seven months later, the strike finally ends. And, you know, we can't communicate during the strike about, you know, anything. So I don't know if he's still up for it. I don't know if he's what, where he's at, you know. So I finally have the meeting after seven and a half months now. I go in and James L. Brooks says, I've decided I, I don't want to do the script because I don't feel I, I, I have enough traction personally in the music world creatively. You know, he just didn't feel he could really hit that out of the park. And, you know, after seven, eight months, his muse just went a, a little different direction. But I, I, you know, feels like a gut punch from Joe Frazier at that point. But he says, but I have notes if you'd like to hear them. So I go, 
yeah, you know, I mean, it was the weirdest feeling. On one end, I was, there was, wow, James L. Brooks is going to give me notes. And on the other end, my whole life just changed back to what it was, you know, <laughs> it could have changed huge. And now, now I'm back to this. And that's the only meeting I ever left. And he had great notes, by the way, especially if he was going to turn it into a script. Great notes. So, uh, you know, I went out to the parking lot and, and I just, and it was about, I think a, a couple of months before my daughter had been born. My daughter was born. So uh, I knew time-wise it might be the last chance I have for a while to really sink a lot of time into a spec script. And I just, it was the only time I, I bent over at my car. I literally felt like I'd run around the bases and got thrown out at home plate. I was just like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You have to be kidding me. Uh, and it hurt. It hurt to, to it, it hurt to have to spend seven months waiting, especially for something I wasn't sure of the upside, what we went on strike for, which was the online stuff. We're still, there's still no validation to that yet. There may be at some point, but it was not, it hasn't turned into a monetary stream for writers. And I'm not sure it will. So that's a little extra uh, uh, punch. But but through that, through that, what I learned was uh, I can write, you know. Now I got to find the time. I got to, you know, stabilize my career, whatever else is going on, my family, everything, make sure that's functioning, find the time to write, and then just keep trying to write. And right now I'm just getting back to that. I think Rossi is a good example of, of that, the Dick Rossi show. Absolutely. Your proudest moment in show business. Wow. Um I, th oh boy, that's that's such a hard toss up between my first Tonight Show and the first Emmy win because I will never forget uh, having just been nominated was sort of raised eyebrows in the business. How did these guys get nominated? Who? What show? Where? You know, and were nominated like you say against the Tonight Show and Letterman and and uh, I'll never forget we it, we all thought well it's a chance to haul out a tuxedo and go somewhere fun. <laughs> So we're sitting there, and uh, the late, great Phil Hartman, who I'd, I'd gotten to know, was presenting the award for Best Writing in a Variety or Talk uh, Series. And uh, Phil reads the nominees, and we're like, oh, this is cool. We're at least in the, no you know, wow, they said our names. Well, not our names, but I mean, you know, they said the show name. And then Phil opens the envelope. He's on stage. We're down in the audience. And I just see him give that, 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 pleasant eyebrow raise where he just did he did this number he went he's reading anything and he went like that and i went oh shit and he goes it's the guys from dennis miller live and i was like oh, i can't fucking believe it i was so amazed i was i was very proud both of those i was really proud at the emmys because i just thought wow we just poured our hearts and soul into the show we had the advantage of dennis who was a monster comic and the advantage of not clouding up a lot of things, not, not cluttering the turf between the writing and the viewer. It was pure writing. It was, it was like taking a shot of pure heroin right in your arm. So that was, that was a great proud moment. Awesome. Final question. What advice would you give to the young comedian in some working class small town <laughs> trying to figure out how to get to the next level and get to the point and stage in their career that you are today? also the kind of writer and 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 performer and combination as such where you could get from where we were producing those shows with Louie to where you are today but not only that what advice would you give 
to the young executive because you work with so many executives who were into the fire. You mentioned Bridget Potter, yeah. who was like one of the most powerful uh, executives I ever uh, worked with the in my life. The fact she stuck with me is still amazing to me. And so what advice do you have to those people who are going through the pressures that they have to help deliver the show to the network? And what advice do you have for the person on the other side of the camp? Well, for the performers out there, um, I would say there are so many platforms now to to get your stuff seen, whether it's stand-up, whether it's improv, uh, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a blog, it doesn't matter. If you feel funny coming out of you, do it some way, shape, or form. You can do it now. You don't have to crawl out of the muck of a club scene for a dozen years. You can get it out there and do it. At the same time, get the experience of working those clubs if, if you want. And the other thing I would say to... Um, to young performers is um, there is strength in the ability to write a joke. Everything I've gotten, everything I've gotten is because I took the time to learn how to write a good joke. I listened to good jokes. I mimicked them for a while. Then I got my own energy and input into it. And and that's so valuable. I mean, it's so valuable. It gets you so many places. It gets you punch-up gigs, which can eventually lead to writing. It gets you on camera. It gets you behind camera. It gets you in comfortable places. You are looked upon as someone who can contribute to virtually any project that has comedy in it. We need a good joke here. Who do we call? Call that kid who writes good jokes. Boom. That's great. For executives... I would learn from my mistakes, and they're mostly mistakes of omission. I would say learn to have some savvy. Learn from your compatriots out there. Ask, 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 ask people you trust who have the job. Uh, ask people above them who have the job, how would you want this job done for you? And as a shy guy, it took me a while to learn that, to learn that it's okay to ask. But I would ask, I would suck up as much information from as many people as you can and understand this. Any meeting you go into, if there's five people in it, there's five agendas. If there's 10 people in it, there's 10 agendas. And serve that. That's not a negative thing. Serve that. Understand that any note from anybody is a good note. Even if all it is is a red flag and as a performer turned executive that took me forever to learn because the writer in me wanted to go that's a crap note i would never address that but there's something there something bumped them at least at the very least look on it as a red flag and say okay we'll look at that area and see if something's bumping us that's the advice i'd give on both sides of the camera powerful powerful for a shy guy who never did anything <laughs> before he got the EP gig. Incredible. This has been a podcast that uh, many people out there, thousands and thousands, <laughs> millions will be inspired by. I mean, this is really great. I'm sorry it took me so long to ask you to oh, do this show. Geez, no worries. I mean, I just had the parrot from Beretta on, and uh, and now you. So. Well, that you know, imagine the things he's seen, <laughs> and fortunately, as a parrot, can tell you about. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's the rare bird booking that works for you. <laughs> My pleasure. As always, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show. 
tell all your friends. <laughs> they say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.